We can turn with me to the prophet Jeremiah chapter 29. We just have a few more Sundays in this summer series on context. We could have done a lot more than what we did. Maybe I'll come back to this in the future. Uh, But looking at passages that are notoriously taken out of context, Jeremiah certainly is one of them. Hopefully we see what is going on here in this letter to the exiles. Uh, Lord willing, in two weeks' time, we'll start in the book of Colossians and just go verse by verse through that book. Uh, But today we're going to look at verses 4 through 14. We won't look at the entire letter, but I will read the entire letter to set the context. So Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through uh, 32. We'll read the whole chapter. So Jeremiah 29, we'll begin reading out verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people who Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemara, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you have caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David concerning all the people who dwell in the city and concerning your brethren who have not gone out with you into captivity. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will send on them the sword, the famine and the pestilence and will make them like rotten figs that cannot be eaten. They are so bad. And I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, with pestilence. And I will deliver them to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse an astonishment, a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. Because they have not heeded my words, says the Lord, which I sent to them by my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them. Neither would you heed, says the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all of you, all of, uh, all of, you of the captivity whom I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Coliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Maaseiah, 
who prophesy a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He shall slay them before your eyes. Because of them, a curse shall be taken up by all the captivity of Judah, who are in Babylon, saying, The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire, because they have done disgraceful things in Israel, have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, and have spoken uh, spoken lying words in my name, which I have not commanded them. Indeed, I know, and I'm a witness, says the Lord. Shall also speak to Shemaniah the the Nehalamite, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, You have sent letters in your name to all the people who are at Jerusalem, to Zephaniah the son of Maaseiah, the priest, and and to all the priests, saying, The Lord has made you priests instead of Jehoiada, the priest, so that there should be officers in the house of the Lord over every man who is demented and considers himself a prophet, that you should put him in prison and in the stocks. Now, therefore, you have not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who makes himself a prophet to you, for he has sent us into Babylon, saying, The captivity is long. Build houses and dwell in them, and plant gardens and eat their fruit. Now, Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Send to all those in captivity, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah the Nehalamite, Because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, and I have not sent him, and he has caused you to trust in a lie. Therefore says the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah the Nehalamite and his family. He shall not have anyone to dwell among this people, nor shall he see the good that I will do for my people, says the Lord, because he has taught rebellion against the Lord. Amen. Well, let us pray. O oh Lord, our God, we are thankful for the blessed restoration. Thank you, O oh God, for the blessed return that we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're also thankful, more importantly, for what that signifies, namely the restoration with you that comes in Christ. Thank you, O God, that he is the Messiah who makes an end to sacrifice, who seals up prophecy and vision. Thank you that Christ is the Messiah, who is the one who has cut off for his people. And we're thankful that that it's in him that we can find you. It's in him because he's the mediator of a better covenant that we know you. We know that this is not because of anything good within us, O God, but because of your promises in that blessed new covenant that cannot be broken. Thank you for these promises, O God, of everlasting life that you've given to us. And thank you for the hope that we have, even as we are exiles in this land. We know that this place, Canada, is not really our home, but we long for heaven and its fullness, O God. And so as we make our way to that celestial city, O God, help us to build houses and dwell in them. Help us to take wives and beget sons and daughters. Help us to seek the peace of the city that we are in, O God, and that we might do it as if unto you. But help us to do so in a detached way, knowing that heaven truly is our home. Help us, more importantly, to seek peace with you and find mercy with you and find forgiveness in you while you may be found. And thank you, God, for many of us here today, we have found that blessed peace that comes from you. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your amazing grace. And thank you, O God, for the finished work of Christ, that in the Messiah's work, we have a heavenly home that awaits us, a place where there is no more sin, no more sorrow, and no more suffering. So give us comfort now as we come to consider your words to these exiles. May we learn the blessedness of what your word says. We know, O God, we need your spirit to understand spiritual things. So we ask, O God, you'd send forth your spirit, give us illumination from on high, be pleased to save sinners, be pleased to strengthen your saints. In all things, O God, we pray that you be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.
Well, throughout our series, I've tried to show the importance of reading Bible passages in their context, the importance of rightly dividing God's word. We're not meant to read the Bible or read Bible verses in a vacuum. We're not meant to read them without considering the immediate context. We're not meant to read them without considering the whole biblical context. Since God is the author of his word, we must consider what he means, consider what he is saying, and consider what he intends for us to see and learn from his word. Now, it is true that Jeremiah 2011 is one of those notorious passages taken out of context. The reality is God really has promised peace for his people. We have to ask ourselves the question, what exactly does that mean? This passage is not about slaying our giants. This passage is not about taking on the world. This passage is not about a painless, wonderful, wonderful plan for our life. But as we read it in context, Jeremiah is writing to a people in captivity. He's writing to a people who've been taken out of their home, rightly so, because of their sin. And he wants to tell them and inform them how they ought to live as they are in exile, but also give them hope while they are still in a place far from home. The people still must face the consequences of their rebellion, a destroyed home, dwelling in a foreign land, and then having to seek the peace of that foreign land. This must all be done according to God's plan but it also is the way in which they're going to find home. Exile for them precedes finding home. And it's going to be a long exile, but that doesn't mean God has forgotten his people. Now, there is one problem that we can see in Jeremiah 29. And the problem is the problem of positive thinking. And what's going on here is we have false prophets with positive message because people want positive messages. Think about it. The people have been taken out of their land. They've been taken to a foreign city. They would like to hear that their captivity is going to be short, right? It's not going to be long. It's going to be quick. We're going to come back. Everything's going to be great when we return to Jerusalem. Well, Jeremiah writes to tell them that's not going to be so. There are certainly prophets in Jeremiah's time who said, it's only going to be two years. That's it. Then we're coming back. Jeremiah, the true prophet, says that will not be so. We have to tell them and inform them what is happening. You see, they need to hear the negative message. We live in a modern time where people don't like the negative messages. They don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to hear about judgment. They want everything just to be fine and dandy and everything's going to be wonderful. But Jeremiah gives us an important reality check. And even though there is a reality check, there is still much hope that we see in this section of scripture. So Jeremiah really is writing to inform the exiles that their exile is going to be long. It's not going to be two years. It's going to be 70 years. And we'll unpack what that means as we go through. It's going to be a long time. But thankfully, God still has not forgotten them, even in their exile. And so there's a lot of things we can glean from what God has to say to the exiles, to the people who have been taken away to Babylon, uh, for us to glean and learn as well as we are called exiles according to the book of First Peter. So what does God want us to see in Jeremiah 29? So two things I think we need to highlight. First of all, we need to see that God wants us to seek the peace of the city, verses 1 through 9. And secondly, God wants us to seek peace with him, verses 10 through 14. So seek the peace of the city will be our first consideration, verses 1 through 9. Then secondly, we'll see seek peace with God, verses 10 through 14. So seek the peace of the city will be verses one through nine. 
really focusing on the present context in which we live in, seeking peace with God is that heavenly dwelling we long for. So seek the peace of the city, verses one through nine. And we must back up and understand the historical context of what's going on uh, during the time of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a long ministry, 40 years in the southern kingdom. Remember, there was that divided kingdom after Solomon's sin. God said, I'm going to tear the kingdom from, or I'm going to rip the kingdom into. Won't be done in your day. It'll be done in your son's day. And so God does that. There's the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, the 10 northern tribes, and there's the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is. So that's uh, 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 Judah and uh, Benjamin are in the south. The other 10 are in the north. Well, they were taken away into captivity in 722 BC by Assyria. So they're gone at this time. There's no more northern kingdom. It's just the southern kingdom. So Jeremiah is prophesying to the southern kingdom and says, repent, turn from your ways, or you're going to face captivity as well. He's prosecuting them based upon the uh, on Deuteronomy, based upon the law. And it's in fact during the time of Jeremiah that Josiah finds the, uh, the, the lost book of Deuteronomy. It's not that they lost it. It's just the people forgot it. Uh, they did lose it because they forgot it. It wasn't as though it was written during that time. They just forgot what God had to say. And so he's prosecuting them saying, repent, turn from your ways, come back uh, to me, and I will not send you into captivity. But if you continue in your rebellion, I'm going to send you into captivity. And so God gives them a precursor to the big one. The big one's in 586 or 87 when Jerusalem is destroyed. And so when he's writing this letter, it's not to those captives. There's a precursor in 597. In 597, some are taken away captive as a bit of a foretaste of the big one that would come. So that's what's going on here. People have been taken away in 597, and some of the prophets, false prophets, are saying it's not going to be long. It's going to be a short period of time. It's going to be quick. And so Jeremiah writes this ominous prophecy in an ominous time, whereas people wanted positive messages in an ominous time. So in Jeremiah 28, 28 Hananiah says it's just going to be two years, and he's talking to the people still in Jerusalem. Then Shemaiah is speaking to the people who've been taken away. It's just going to be fine. It's going to be great. Well, that's not what God says, and that's not what Jeremiah says as well. So he sends this letter. It's not going to be short. It's going to be long. And so he sends this by way of king, uh, by the, 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 the scribes, the messengers who would take it. It has to come through Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So he would have read this and would have understood what is going on. And this is what God had to say to them. Verse four, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. What's interesting is right away with this address, we see words of comfort by the name of our God. Notice he says, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. That highlights something in very important and, important and encouraging or ought to be encouraging for the people of God. When we refer to the Lord as the Lord of hosts, it highlights that he is the God over all things. He's the God over every nation. He is the God over everything in this world. I think sometimes we forget that. I think sometimes we forget that very fact that God really is king over all and all things are operating according to his will and according to his purposes. God really is the Lord of hosts. But as God moves time and space, he certainly does so for his glory we must not forget that he does so 
for the benefit of his people. He is the Lord of hosts, but he's also the God of Israel. So as he's writing to these people who are no doubt in a melancholy state, he is saying to them, I am the Lord of hosts. I govern all things. I see all that's going on with Babylon. In fact, I raised up Babylon. I'll raise up Cyrus uh, as well, who will bring you back. God really is over all things, but he does it as the God of Israel, the God for his people, the covenant Lord who remembers and knows that he is for his people. That ought to be a boon to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we look around the world and see the church is diminishing. The government's increasing. People are getting more hostile. But remember Jesus's words in Matthew 16, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The gates of Hades, the implication there is the church is on the attack. The church is at the gates of Hades, not the gates of Hades at the gates of the church. The gates of the Hades shall not prevail against the church. So the remnant would take, I would have taken this to heart. He is not just the Lord of hosts, but he is the God of Israel for his people. And the exile is not outside the plan of God. So he writes it to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. And three things he highlights in this letter. He highlights how they're supposed to live, which we'll look at in verses 5 through 9. He'll highlight what they look forward to, which we'll highlight in verses 10 through 14. Then he'll also highlight the reason their home is being destroyed, verses 15 to the end. It's because of rebellion, it's because of wickedness, that the people, the old covenant people, broke that old covenant, which is going to pave the way for a new covenant. But before he gets there, our focus will be on how they're supposed to live and also what they can look forward to. So let's then turn to the task of the captives in verses 5 through 9. Notice what he says. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Exile is not going to be short. In fact, in Jeremiah 25, he has prophesied about the 70 years of desolation that shall come. I will unpack what that means when we get to verse 10. But it's not going to be two years. It's going to be a long period of time. So perhaps there would have been people holding out. You know, it's just going to be two years. I'm not going to live my life. I'm not going to, you know, give people in marriage. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to do that. That's not what God says here. It's going to be a long time. Live your life. When you get there, build a house. Now, the implication is, even though they're under Nebuchadnezzar, they can still build a house, right? They can still have nice things in the present captivity that they're in. They can build homes. They can plant gardens. They can eat good things. All those things are a blessing and a benefit. And so when you're there, seek those things. Build houses. Dwell in them. Plant gardens. Eat their fruit. Marry. The, the basic things of life, enterprise, family, and, well, the government or, or the city. I'll talk about that in just a second. But notice all these things are general blessings that God gives. So as they are in the land, they ought to pursue those general blessings and good things that God gives as if they were in their own home. Build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons. 
Not that they were to intermarry with the heathen, but just follow the normal course of life. Live your life even in exile. Still have children even in exile. Sometimes you hear people say, I've heard climate activists like to say, I'm never going to have children because the climate's you know, going to cause the end of the world. Well, sometimes even Christians do that. Well, things aren't going great. Should I have more children? Well, take wives, beget sons, daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. You know, certainly there are situations that arise. I understand that. But the general call here is not, wow, the world's terrible. I shouldn't have children. In fact, all the more to have children. Hope we don't raise brats and they can be better for the next generation, right? That would be a good thing. In fact, the leftists aren't having children. And Christians are having children, so that's a good thing, right? So hopefully that's a benefit as hopefully time shifts and things, pendulum swings the other way. But the point is to live your life, even in exile, even in captivity, one must still live their life. So there certainly is a general benefit that the Israelites were to partake in as they are in exile. But what's hidden, not hidden, more subtle, is the redemptive benefits that you, verse 6, may be increased there and not diminished. Again, the tendency of a despondent person would be to just throw in the towel. What's the point of building? What's the point of having families? But notice there is a bit of an Abrahamic promise going on here. You see, if the people stopped having children, what of the promises of God? And even though the old covenant people by after violating the Mosaic covenant, were sent into captivity. What of the Abrahamic promise? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When will that be? When will that take place? Yes, the remnant would have been despondent, but they would have clung to that very promise. And same as well for the Davidic covenant as well. The people would have asked, Wait, what if the Davidic king, I thought you said David would have a dynasty forever, but he's going to be kicked out. What's going on here? And that's exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 89. He says, God, you made this covenant with David. You swore to him. You said all these things. And then the last part of it, it's like, I don't understand. You see, there's implicit promise, even in the people who are sent into exile. This will not be the end for God's promises. God's promises still remain. His Abrahamic promise shall be fulfilled and his Davidic promise shall be fulfilled. And in fact, in the return or one of the returns in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter eight, verse two, under Ezra's return, there's a guy named Hattush. You're like, who's Hattush? You don't really need to know about Hattush other than the fact that he's a son of David. A son of David returns from captivity under Ezra. That is, implicitly, God's promises continue. God's promises remain, even when things might seem like it's not coming to pass, even when things seem desolate. We've looked at this before with the stump king in Isaiah 11. The implication is everything's going to be laid waste. The trees are going to be laid waste, but there's a stump. There's a branch that's going to grow. There's going to be hope in that time. We looked at the Emmanuel prophecy before he shall know before he shall know what is right and good. The kingdom shall be taken into destruction. The two kingdoms I applied there to refer to the northern and the southern kingdom. There must be exile before Emmanuel comes. 
And so when the people are taken away, probably by hooks in their cheeks to take away to Assyria or then to Babylon, they would have had to remember Emmanuel, he shall come. So this is a great promise, not just what what to do practically, but also for the remnant uh, redemptively. God's promises remain. And in fact, in Genesis 22, he does say, your seed shall multiply. So what of the Abrahamic promises if the people just throw in the towel, that you may be increased there and not diminished? Calvin pointed this out, and I thought it was an excellent encouragement for us and for the people, or it would have been for the people, for the remnant at that time. So the seed shall continue as they give or take wives, as they take, uh, have they give, uh, give or uh, uh, as they uh, raise up sons and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that you may be increased and not diminished. So build families, seek the good of the, uh, build houses, enterprise, provide for them, engage in the institution of the family. But notice verse seven as well. Seek the peace of the city. And notice he says, and seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. Again, he doesn't stop being I am. He doesn't stop being the God of the people, even though the Mosaic covenant is broken and they are in captivity. The remnant still can call out to him. And one of the prayers they must pray is for the benefit of the city. That's hard, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar has come in, probably killed some loved ones, taken them away to captivity, and, and that God is saying, seek the peace of that city. See, the reality is that city is not their home, but they must still seek the benefit of it. And the reason being, for in its peace, you will have peace. His promises are sure, but they still are going to go into exile. And as they are in exile, they must seek to be a blessing and a boon to the people around them, not to be a hindrance. Now, there is this sort of tension, isn't there? There's this tension for them that it's not going to be their home, but they still have to seek the benefit of that. That's hard. Now, certainly we see New Testament language speak this way when it comes to submitting to the governing authorities. We ought to seek their benefit. We ought to seek their blessing. Insofar, they don't tell us to go against God's word. Insofar, they don't say you can't worship God according to his word. Then we must obey God rather than man. But as far as it depends on us, we must be at peace with all men, even with men like Nebuchadnezzar. You know who are great examples of this? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And David. I mean, in reality, the time in exile, the prophet Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, is a much greater application for us than the theocratic Israel. Because we're exiles, aren't we? Peter calls us exiles. Canada, yes, is our home, but not really. Heaven is our home that we long for. We long for a greater heavenly kingdom that awaits us. And so the application for exiles is a good application for us as God's people. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel sought the peace of the city in which they were in. Only insofar as they didn't go against God's word. Then if it went against God's word, they said, we cannot bow to you. We cannot bow down to your idol, King Nebuchadnezzar. We trust God will deliver us, but come what may. Or Daniel with his prayer, he just quietly went, opened his window, and kept praying. We must seek the peace of the city 
insofar as they don't tell us to sin against God. We ought to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but more importantly, to God, the things that are God's. That's the nuance. That's the wisdom we must have as we interact with this fallen world. Seek the peace of the city in which you live. Pray to God for it, for in its peace, you will have peace. We ought not to seek the downfall of our nation. I don't know why, because if there's bloodshed, we're not going to enjoy that. Bloodshed is never good, dear brethren. War is always evil. I know there's a time for war, Ecclesiastes 3, except in just war. And and the way in which we talk about just war is only in self-defense. That can get messy. That can get difficult as life unfolds in the specific situations. But we ought to seek the peace of the city because we don't want that, do we? We don't want bloodshed. We don't want sorrow. We don't want sadness. I don't want a tyrant either, by the way. We pray that God would remove them. But we don't want bloodshed in this world. We don't want those things. We ought to seek the peace of the city in which we live. Doesn't mean we can't flee. Doesn't mean we can't run away. Doesn't mean we can't go. You know, Christ says, if you're persecuted in one city, flee to the next. But if we decide to stay, we must seek the peace of that city as far as it depends upon us. So seek the peace. And the reason they were to do this is because prophets were telling them not to do this. Verses eight and nine. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, again, that important reminder of who God is over the world, but for his people, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which you've caused to be dreamed. Don't listen to those guys. Don't put stock in your own dreams. Notice what he says. Don't follow the false prophets, but don't put stock in your own thoughts, nor listen to your dreams, which you caused to be dreamed. The people would have wanted it to be two years, right? They would have wanted to be quick. And so as they're thinking about this a lot, what did they do? They heaped up teachers who scratched that itch, right? They heaped up prophets who would say, yep, it's going to be two years. You want a positive message? I'll give you that positive message. Here it is. Two years. Don't listen to them and don't listen to yourself. We ought not to put a lot of stock in our own dreams, Sometimes that happens, right? You have a very vivid dream and you think it's a word from God. I highly doubt that. I know I'm being mean right now, but I highly doubt that very thing. The best thing to do is take every thought captive with the word of God. Trust what he says here. Because sometimes we may have a dream because we've been daydreaming that day. Listen to John Gill. There are thoughts running on it in the daytime. They dreamed of it at night and fancied it was from the Lord a divine dream, and so built much upon it. Sometimes our minds get so filled with certain things during the day that we dream about it at night, right? I don't know if you've experienced that. I certainly have. I don't have any examples for you right now, but we have those weird, vivid, interesting dreams. doesn't mean it's a word from God. This is the word from God. This is what we need to trust in, namely what he says in his scriptures. So we ought not to trust false prophets who deceive. We ought to trust our own dreams or their dreams, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Now, this was all to tell them, hey, it's going to be a long time. And one of the reasons they were telling, he was telling them this, that it was going to be a long time, A, because it was true, but B, so they would stop and consider why 
The reason they are sent into captivity was because of their wickedness. They need to stop and let it sink in. They need to ponder and endure and then hopefully repent of that very thing. That's what Calvin highlights. They need to stop and let it sink in what was going on. It would be prolonged so that the people would think about what they did. They rebelled against God most high. They brought in idols to his temple. They committed fornication. They engaged in unnecessary bloodshed, heinousness and wickedness, violating God's law. This is why they were sent into captivity. They broke God's covenant. And God, true to his covenant, said, I will curse you if you break it. And what does he do? He curses them by sending them into captivity, sending them into exile. Thankfully, God is still gracious, even for them in exile. Now, the application, I think, is clear. I've already highlighted this for us. It's an important reminder for us in the present age of what we are. We are exiles. Peter's whole letter is about this very thing. He starts off his letter as he addresses the people to whom he is addressing. He says to them, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims, or better, the sojourners, the exiles, the temporary residents of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect. I do think it's not just Jews, but he's including Gentiles as well. Later on in verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. He's telling them this world is not their home. His whole letter is about how this world is not their home. He does go on to say at the beginning, you have a heavenly inheritance that awaits you. But as you walk towards that celestial city using John Bunyan, here's how you're supposed to live in light of that. Now, he doesn't say build homes and plant vineyards and seek the peace of the city, but actually he does say that, doesn't he? He doesn't say it quite like that, but he does say that throughout the letter. He says, seek the word be built up in that word. You are the chosen people, a chosen race using old covenant language. Here's what you are in light of the rest of the world. Then he tells them, submit to the government in all things lawful. Engage in, uh, submit to your masters. And I, we apply usually the servant master relationship to employee employer, work hard. That's what we ought to do. Husbands, wives and husbands, how they care for one another. Words to wives, words to husbands. How we live in light of persecution, not suffering for evil's sake, but for righteousness' sake, serving God above all. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift, suffering for God's glory, not being prideful and arrogant, submitting to the elders, what elders, what the church ought to be, submitting unto them, considering others better than ourselves. Submitting to God's plan and purposes. Brethren, that's God's will for our life, isn't it? It's not necessarily a life that's going to be slaying giants or everything's going to be wonderful. I'm going to take on the world and nobody's going to stop me. The reality is, is that we are exiles in this land. It's going to be hard. There's pain and decay and change but here's how we live as exiles in this land. And I love the way one 
theologian highlights how we ought to live. This is the present evil age. This is the civil kingdom, the society in which we live, joyful, modest, detached. Praise God for the benefits of being able to build a home. Praise God for all the benefits he gives. Detached, because it's, you know, it's going to burn one day. Modest, not living in laps of luxury and making that an idol. And in a godly way. That's how we are to live, dear brother. And one of the things Paul says in 1 Timothy is pray for rulers, kings in high places. Why? That you might lead quiet and peaceable lives. Pray that they would be able to rule rights or justly, that they might leave us alone. That's all we want. Government, just leave us alone. I'm sure the government is listening right now. Just let us be. Just stop it. We just want to live a lonely life honoring our God. That's all we want to do. We're not trying to slay giants. Seriously. That's all we want to do. I love what Henry says. He says, meek and quiet people that work and mind their own business have often found much better treatment, even with strangers and enemies than they expected. And God has made his people to be pitied of those that carry them captives. And a pity it is, but that those who have built houses should dwell in them. These are benefits. These are good things. We must not understand our task to be to change the world, but to honor God in it. It's not to peer into the plans of God, but submit to what he has for us. So how ought we to live, brethren? Build homes, plant vineyards and gardens and eat of them, take wives and have children, seek the peace of the city. That's our task, and doing so in a godly way in this present evil age. Now, one thing that is more important than that is peace with God. Now, certainly sometimes they coincide honoring Caesar, according, according to all things lawful, is honoring God. But say there are times in which those things can clash. And this present evil age is only but for a moment. Uh, eternity with God is but for eternity. So one thing that is more important than the peace of the city is peace with God. So that's our second point. Let's look at peace with God, verses 10 through 14. Notice, this is not going to be forever. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good towards you and cause you to return to this place. Now, a lot of people spill ink on how long 70 years is. You're like, Mike, I thought it was 70 years. Well, they like to do the math on the dates and what happened with that. You know, there was the major exile, the exile in 586, and the temple was rebuilt in 516. So that's 70 years. But if you actually look at Jeremiah's prophecy, it's the fourth year of Jehoiakim. So that's about 606. And then, you could, then that's 536, which was the first year of Cyrus's you know, full reign. But the decree of Cyrus was in 538. So that doesn't really work, really, does it? We always like to do that math, right? Well, the reality is 70 years probably refers to a figurative meaning, right? Some people like to say, no, it's definitely part of the literal, but it can be both, and that could be true, and that's what Kyle and Dalich say, but it's more about the symbolic significance. Kyle and Dalich say, they do say there is a, an exact correspondence with their math, but I don't necessarily see it, but they'll go on to say it is rather its symbolic significance as the number of perfection for God's works. This significance lies in the contrast of seven, 
as the characteristic number for works of God with 10, the number that marks earthly completeness. And hereby, prophecy makes good its distinguishing character versus soothsaying or the prediction of contingent matters. The symbolic value of the number comes clearly out in the following verses, where the fall of Babylon is announced to come in 70 years, although it took place two years earlier. The point is, it's going to be long, but it's going to be short. That's the point of what the 70 means. We're going to unpack more numbers in just a moment. I know this isn't a math class, but we will do that. But he does say, after 70 years are complete at Babylon, you shall return. And everything about what he unpacks in verses 11 through 14 has to do with very new covenant type language. Nearness to God, calling upon him, salvation. Very new covenanty, isn't it? I made up a new word, covenanty. New covenanty, new covenantish. It's the type of thing that we see going on here. And it's interesting that in the book of Consolation in Jeremiah, chapters 30 through 33, we have the promise of that new covenant. The promise of the new covenant that cannot be broken. The, the covenant that is better than the old, where Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. The promise of what that looks like. Now, it is true there is restoration. 538. Cyrus's decree, he decrees the Jewish people can return. I know I've used dates, but I've used them a lot in our church. Those that have been with us for a long time should know them all off by heart, right? 538 is one of them, and 586 is another one, right? What's 586? It's the fall of Jerusalem. 722, the fall of Samaria, the northern kingdom. And 538, the decree of Cyrus. And then subsequently, there are various returns in Ezra, Nehemiah. But God has promised that. He said, I will bring you back. I will cause you to return. I will cause you to come back to this place. And he does fulfill that very thing in 538 and the subsequent dates with the various ones who bring the people back. God has performed his good. God has brought goodness to them. He's caused them to return to that very place. And notice verse 11. This is where we come to that verse. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. The point of verse 11 is not that you're going to have a Rolls Royce. The point, a not point of verse 11 is not that everything's going to be wonderful. The point of verse 11 is God's promises are sure. That's what he's trying to highlight here. For I know the thoughts that I think. And the thoughts emphasis here are not the hidden thoughts of God, but the revealed thoughts in the promises of God, in that Abrahamic promise, in the Davidic promise, in the promise of restoration, that throughout the prophets are sprinkled out. Throughout their prophecies of doom and gloom and judgment, there's these prophecies, but there's going to be a return. But I will restore you. But I will, I will bring about restoration. But God has those buts in scripture. We ought to appreciate those buts because it highlights the goodness of God in redemptive history. That's what verse 11 is highlighting. In Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. In David, there would be an everlasting dynasty. And these are words that the people of Israel should have known. What was their problem? They forgot it. Now, the remnant would have remembered, but the ones who were not the remnant, the wicked ones, they would have forgotten this very thing, and they certainly 
did forget this, but there's comfort there. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you. It gives the exiles hope. This isn't some wishy-washy, you'll never have pain text, but a reminder of the grace of God toward exiles. And if you are an exile, is God not gracious and good to promise you an everlasting home? If you are in Christ, is God not good as you walk in this present evil age to give you that sure hope of that heavenly inheritance in the heavenly places? This is what God is saying in Jeremiah 29, 11, the promise of everlasting hope and peace in him, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And he unpacks further what that means in verses 12 through 14. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Highlights how he is the covenant God. I will be your God and you will be my people is the language that we see here. And the reality is the people were not praying. The people were not calling upon him. The people were not seeking them in their rebellion. The only way that one can seek God is if God first gives them the power to seek him, right? The only way that one seeks God is if God first seeks them. But there is this blessed call, isn't there? Seek him while he may be found. The language of seeking does carry the idea of prayer. The idea of calling upon his name does carry the idea of salvation. And how is one saved? Yes, believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't we do that in prayer? We believe upon him in prayer. I'm not talking about the sinner's prayer, but confessing and believing that he is the son of God. Do we not do that in our prayers? Do not continually confess who he is when we pray. Will not his people continually seek him? That's again, the benefit of the new covenant. His people will seek him. Those who are his can call upon him. That is a promise of the new covenant. If you pray according to his will, it shall be answered. He says this very thing. Jesus says this very thing in John 14, says this very thing in John 15, that we can find him. And if we ask according to his will, it shall be answered. So he's our covenant God. We are his covenant people. You will seek me and find me when you search with all your heart. Again, it's a heart working that God brings. I will find by you. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. He shall bring them back. And as I said, he does. 538. Now those words signify what we see here, what signifies 538. But what does 538 then signify? Turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. There is a prophet, spoiler alert, it's Daniel. He is pondering and considering Jeremiah 25. And we can then bring that in with Jeremiah 29 as well about the 70 years prophecy. Daniel has been in captivity. He's recognizing it seems that The 70 years are coming to an end, Lord. And so, brethren, what does he do? He prays. And what does he pray? 
He prays and asks for forgiveness. He prays and asks for mercy for the people. And he prays God's promises back to him. God, did you not say you would bring your people back? Now let it be so. It says in verse two, in the first year of Darius or Darius of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books of the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish seven years, uh, 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So he sought his face. He sought the Lord and prayed. He came with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession. I will not read it all, but he highlights the shame of the people. He highlights all their wickedness. He highlights the, the, the violation of God's law. He highlights the disaster of breaking God's law in verses 13 through 15. And he says in verse 16, bring us back, let your anger be turned away from the city. Bring your people back that they might no longer be a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant. Cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Do not delay, he says at the end, for your own sake. And guess what happens? This is where we see the 70 weeks prophecy. Gabriel hears his prayer and comes and explains what's going on. You see that second, uh, second exodus, that return under Ezra and Nehemiah, is not enough, is it? It's as David says, it's a return under cloudy skies. They may have returned, but there's still no king. There's still no Messiah. They're still awaiting for him. Well, thankfully, Daniel tells us who the king is, Right? You see, all the book of Daniel is about who the king is and what the people are looking towards and what the people are looking for. And he explains figuratively 70 weeks. He talks about how one will come after 70 weeks are determined. There's going to be end of transgression, sins, reconciliation for iniquity, everlasting righteousness. So you'll have vision and prophecy. Well, who's going to do all those things? It goes on to talk about how there's going to be seven plus 62, so 69 weeks, probably what the seven weeks refers to is the time of 538 to the time when the temple is rebuilt, and then the 62 is from the temple rebuilt to the coming of the Messiah. And so notice after 69 weeks, so after 62, so seven plus 62, verse 26, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So at 69 weeks, the Messiah is going to be cut off and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war of desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And in the middle of that week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined is poured out on the desolate. We kind of highlighted this in Mark 13, didn't we? The abomination of desolation, I argue, in Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse, is Israel's wickedness. Their abominations that lead to desolation. Their vileness. And in Mark 13, is it not all about the doing away with the old and bringing in the new? Is Mark 13 not them all about pondering, considering how he's going to destroy that temple? And we're like, what? And then Jesus explains all those things that are coming to pass. 
You see, the beautiful thing is the Messiah, when he is cut off in that 69th week, makes an end to this. He brings an end to sin and destruction and transgression. You see, the return under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah is not enough. There must be reconciliation with God. There must be a mediator of a better covenant. And this is what Gabriel is saying to Daniel as he considers the 70 years and the restoration and return. And he comes to say after 70 weeks, in the 69th week, after that time, one would come who would then bring an end to these things. One who would come who would be cut off for his people. One who would do away with the old and bring in the new to make a covenant with them. You know what this means, brethren? We're in that last week. That's what I believe anyway. Because the son has been cut off for his people. In the middle of that week, he shall be cut off. He was cut off for his people. We're awaiting for that full week to come in, right? We're almost there. It's only half a week that we got to wait till he comes again. What does that highlight for us? There is restoration in the sun. There is mercy in the sun. There is forgiveness in the son who came to save his people from their sins. That is where restoration is, dear brethren. That's why if you seek God in Christ, you shall find him. That is why if you seek God, you shall find mercy. And when I say seek God, I mean believe upon him by faith. That is the mercy and blessedness of what Christ has done for his people as the mediator of a better covenant who's redeemed us from the exile and from the bondage of our sin. And it's no wonder that the Bible refers to what Christ has done as an exodus, a redemption, a restoration for his people spiritually. That's what I think is going on in Daniel chapter 9. He's pondering and considering the temple, its destruction and its restoration, finding which I believe fulfillment is in the Son. All things, as Cam preached, all things point to the Lord Jesus Christ, and all things find their fulfillment in him. Now, that would be a good place to stop, right? I probably should just stop there. Sometimes there's a moment, just stop. But we also need to highlight the encouragement as people making our way home, right? All that we have in Christ is a gift that he gives. And what we have in the mediator of a better covenant is a greater and better inheritance in him. Unfading, undefiled in the heavenly places. We don't walk as exiles without hope. We long for Christ's second coming. We long for its fullness. This is what we look towards, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3. So we look towards, as Paul says throughout his epistles, even in Titus 2, 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 4, throughout, they're looking for this. And Calvin says, and I think this is a good application for us, it was not indeed God's purpose that they should set their hearts on Babylon. On the contrary, they were ever to think of their return. But until the end of the 70 years, it was God's will that they should continue quiet, not attempt this or that, but carry on the business of life as though they were in their own country. As in their hope, then, 
It was God's will that their minds should be in a state of suspense until the time of deliverance. And brethren, aren't our minds in a state of suspense as we await Christ's coming and return? He has prepared for us a house and a home, and we long for its fullness to come in. And we can seek him by faith. We can seek him by prayer. Seek him in the church, which is his embassy, his consulate, a reminder as we make our way to that home. This is what he has given us. Do we believe it? Do we trust it? And do we seek him while he may be found? And thankfully, brethren, if you're in Christ, there's mercy and you shall be found and he shall be found for that is what his promise says. Now, if you're an unbeliever here today, seek God while he may be found. While you still have breath, there is still hope. And I hope and pray that God does a mighty work in you that you might believe upon him and be saved. Now is the time. You don't know when your day of death comes. You don't know when the day of Christ comes. Believe upon him now and you shall be saved. Seek God while he may be found and you shall find him. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we are thankful for your covenant promises that are sure and true. And thank you, O God, for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and the fulfillment of the Davidic in the promise of the Son. Thank you that Christ is that seed. Christ is that David. Christ is that one who came. And in him, all the families of the earth are certainly blessed. Thank you, O God, that he is the temple of his people. Thank you, O God, that it's through him we have communion with you. Thank you, O God, that these promises are sure even now, even as we are exiles in this land. And so we ask, O God, as we are exiles, help us, we pray, to seek the peace of the city in which we live. Help us to obey you above all, but help us to seek the peace of the city uh, where you have placed us. But above all, God, may we find peace with you. May we love the gatherings. May we love being with one another. May we love the preaching of the word. May we love your Lord's day Sabbath as it is a market day of the soul, as it is a foretaste of our heavenly rest. May we understand that this really is a glimpse of that inheritance that awaits us, O God. Thank you so much for the down payment of the spirit. Thank you so much for your mercy and grace. And we pray, O God, that you give your people comfort and strength as we are exiles in this land. Help us to pray. Help us to be uh, under the preaching. Help us to praise, O God, as your people and help us to honor and glorify you. And if there are any here today who do not know you, O God, we pray that they would seek you. They would seek you by faith. And according to your promises, whoever believes on you shall have everlasting life. So we pray, O God, that they would find everlasting life in you and see that this world is fleeting. This world is passing away, but the word of the Lord and the people of God shall endure forever. So save them, we pray. Bring about your salvation. Thank you for all that you do according to your covenant promises, O God. And we pray that the Lord Jesus would come quickly. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.